This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the very first episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. You've heard the 40-second highlights on WTOP, but this podcast is a chance to share the full in-depth conversations. Whenever I interview someone famous, you'll be the first to hear it. And I'll even tap into the archives whenever it makes sense. It's a real treasure trove of interviews over the past decade here in the nation's capital. But we're kicking things off with arguably the most prolific documentary filmmaker ever, Ken Burns, who just dropped a new three-part documentary series on Ernest Hemingway on PBS. Enjoy. Hey, Jason, it's Ken. And also, this is uh, co-directed by my longtime uh, producing and directing partner, Lynn Novick, too. So produced by Sarah Botstein and written by Jeffrey Ward. This is the team that we don't leave home without. Yes. And our listeners and your fans will definitely remember their names from the credits from all of your stuff. So I'm glad you threw them in there. You're so famous for the Ken Burns effect, the visual push-in style. But to me, the real Ken Burns effect has always been your desire to tackle subjects that either we knew about and want to know more about, or I admire you most for something, let's say, like country music that you admit you didn't really know much about, but you wanted to learn more about. So um, where did where did you fall with Hemingway? Like, how how familiar were you with his work? Well, I knew a little bit. I, you know, starting in high school, I was exposed to short stories and novels like The Old Man and the Sea and read more as an adult. But I, I think there was a curiosity in a sense that there was more uh, than meets the eye, that he was an iceberg in which what you saw in his writing is true in, in his great extraordinary writing that that he was very spare. So it was the tip of the iceberg and the meaning that was unexpressed, but there was below the surface. But it's also true of his personal life. You had a sense he's got this pretty convenient facade, but it's also pretty, you know, um, thin and you and you wanted to go beyond it. And that's what we try to do in this three part, six hour series. I mean, it's it's about as deep a dive as we've gone into anyone's psychology that I, I can remember in 40 years of doing this stuff. That's great. Yeah. And speaking of the deeper dive, I mean, you, you sort of speak to the myth of Hemingway, the facade. That's what everyone thinks of, sort of that that Teddy Roosevelt style, you know, big game hunter, deep sea fisherman, you know, sort of thing that he liked to portray himself as. But how does that how does that myth compare to the actual man of him as a husband and a father and his personal demons and, and all that sort of thing? Well, let's just say that that myth is actually true or there he is a great lover of nature. It was a soothing bomb for him. He is a macho guy going into various wars and, and trying to do it. He is a brawler. He is a big drinker. He is a deep sea fisherman and a big game hunter. He does those things. But what I think he do, did is he permitted and he helped to enlarge the kind of facade that that's the way it was. But what's behind it is so much interesting, a kind of vulnerability, a curiosity about how women live and think, a, a gender fluidity that will be stunning to people 
when they see the film. You just can't believe that this macho posturing also contains with it a man extraordinarily sensitive, a man who's extraordinarily vulnerable and, and in many ways insecure at various times in his life, and also a man beset, as you suggest, by demons, you know, a history of mental illness in the family, suicides in the family, uh, PTSD from World War One and other uh, situations, a series of traumatic brain injuries across the entire scope of his life, alcoholism, uh, the medications necessary to keep, uh, the self-medications that necessary to keep going. So you don't know what the one thing is that, that results in his tragic ending. But I think watching this most famous of the 20th century author, and, and legitimately so, his writing is so spectacular, have these other halves is, I think, interesting. And I had no idea. No, none of us had that until we began to go in. And so rather than telling you what you should know about Hemingway, we're excited to share our process of discovery. Hey, look what we discovered. And it's, it's a great show. Oh, yeah, so much to unpack from your answer. And, and uh, I particularly like what you were saying about you know, how there was that other side, almost as you paint the thing, almost an androgynous side um, to the macho facade. There was, you know, as a kid, his it, you showed that his mom would dress up him and his sister, um, who she claimed they'd be twins, and sometimes they'd be twin girls and sometimes twin boys. Um, later, you know, one of his wives uh, cut her hair short while he grew his long, and they tried to match hair lengths. Um, and it even showed up in, in in some of his characters, you know, some of the, the female characters. With one of the interviewees talking about how he almost writes from the point of view of a woman, defending the fact that this macho guy actually had a feminine sensibility sometimes. Well, it, it is easy to dismiss Ernest Hemingway if you only accept the conventional wisdom or the superficial knowledge. But if you don't, as I think we're all required to do, is dig a, deep, a little bit deeper, it's surprising, his empathy. There are short stories that he wrote a hundred years ago that are stunning in their ability to capture, uh, get inside, as the writer Edna O'Brien says, you know, the skin of a person of the opposite sex is kind of androgyny that you have to perform. And, and, and the twinning, uh, that is to say the dressing, um, not just one sister, but all his sisters and himself um, as boys and girls was not an uncommon thing, but clearly some thing about the gender distinctions blurred with him in a way. And he took that into his life and all of his, his wives were asked to cut their hair and often did. And he grew here his long and they would do role playing and role reversals um, in their sex life, which he was willing to talk about in posthumously published novels and in letters that we had access to. So I think what it does is it, it tells you there's somebody else. You also begin to see the high cost of trying to maintain a kind of celebrity status, the way it distracts you from your normal, in, in Hemingway's case, extraordinary discipline of writing. And things go off the rails periodically. And then at the end, it's sort of hard to avoid uh, the train wreck uh, that, the, that the very end is. But it's, it's fascinating because this is a man who has created, you know, a couple dozen short stories that are among the finest short stories ever written and four really good novels. You can quibble about which one you like or don't like. The Sun Also Rises, A Farewell to Arms, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and Old Man and the Sea, and some dreadful writing and a good deal of nonfiction in which we like to say, oh, he's 
the new journalism before Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson, but he's following his literary hero, Mark Twain, who did the same sort of thing, travel writing, getting in humor and getting in commentary and 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 I think that that Hemingway does it sometimes to beautiful effect and sometimes to not so uh, great effect, and it it certainly made him uh, susceptible uh, to critics. But but you know, with with a farewell to arms and for whom the bell tolls and the sun also rises and and old man in the sea, you've got great great novels. I mean, he wrote um, old man in the sea in one of the worst down periods of his psychological and physical and emotional life. And, you know, it was from that that the Nobel Committee awarded him the Nobel Prize for Literature, which is, you know, a pretty amazing endorsement of Hemingway um, for, for, for the ages, not just for the moment. Oh, yeah, I mean, his writing is for the ages, so it's fitting. Um, you know, we've, we've sort of been dissecting a lot about his psyche and his upbringing and inspirations and the like. Um, speak to his actual prose, like as a writer for a second. I, one of your interview subjects nailed it and said he rearranged the furniture and all of us authors sit on it and you might be sitting on the arm of the couch but you either embrace his ghost or you have to kill it off those are two two commentators um uh tobias wolf is about the furniture and abraham Verghese is about this idea that you have to either uh kill his ghost or embrace it which just tells you of the central centrality of his influence and what it is is he is born out of a period that we call now modernism a kind of post uh first world war begins in the first world war it's the complicated uh compositions of stravinsky and eric satie it's uh, new paintings by picasso and cezanne and others it's um the very complicated and complex and difficult to read prose of James Joyce and William Faulkner. But Hemingway ever, ever bit the modernist as one of our literary critics in the film says, uh, dared to um, impersonate simplicity. So he wrote these very spare sentences that represented the early training in music that his mother gave him, the, the compositions of Bach, um, counterpoint and repetition, repetition and counterpoint. And also he'd been a cub reporter for the Kansas City Star and they were known for their spare writing. So it was like, don't use adjectives, just state the, the facts. These declarative sentences that are often parodied but what what it does is it permits him to invest all this meaning in 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 seemingly simple things and it's just um catnip if you're if you're if you're a a, a reader because what he's able to do without all the ornamentation of others is get right at the heart so there's something in the prose uh that is so amazing uh, I was just last night reading from A Farewell to Arms, stuff about the way we sentimentalize and 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 turn into nostalgia war, which is the, the last thing we want to do. And all of these other things that take place, um, how he how he's able to manage that is just an extraordinary gift. Yeah, he's. I think he he even once is quoted there. Jeff Daniels reading his voice, obviously, that of how he hated certain phrases like, you know, thank you for your service type stuff. I mean, it, it, right. Romantic. Valor and glory. And, right. um, exactly. you know, and he, he has a line about, you know, that they, you know, that war does. It's like the sh stockyards at Chicago if they did nothing with the meat. And what he's reminding us is that there beats in the human breast this this need 
to go to war, to solve disputes with violence that involves killing people. And he is not going to flinch from describing to you what that actually means. Not just the abstraction, oh yeah, well, there's gonna be casualties in every war. No, every one of those people are human lives and he is able to speak for the dead in a way and he understands the other human equation that none of us are getting out of this alive. So he's always writing about death. It's, it's preoccupying him when most of us would try to pretend like, oh, that's not going to happen, right? That an exception is going to be made in my case and I'm going to live forever or I just can't deal with it. And he's always, he's not rubbing our noses in it because he's an artist. He's just saying, this is what happens in life. It's complicated and, and he is complicated and the undertow and the contradictions and the opposites that abound in his life make it, you know, a Shakespearean tragedy because of how it turns out, but it also make it so Shakespearean in the fact that there are so many dimensions to him. You know, as the first wife said, he, um, he had so many uh, sides that it defied geometry. <laughs> That's a really great <laughs> way, way to describe him. I love it. Yeah. I mean, watching your work, I feel like there's three things that sort of really are constantly always either eating at him or driving him. One you just alluded to, which is the horrors of war that he saw up close and he comes home and he just suddenly his parents expect him to go back to life normal. And it's there's no way after you've seen that. Another is his time in Paris surrounded by all these great artists and, you know, the Fitzgeralds. And, and then the third is this constant eating of his knowing his own father committed suicide. And ultimately, we know Hemingway would also do it. But speak to those three things or if there's anything else you want to throw in there of what are those drivers from his own closet that are driving him? Yeah, I think that there's um, nobody's prepared for World War I. It's unlike anything else. So the kind of world that his parents were preparing for him just disappeared. And nobody really fully appreciates what happens to people in war, what it does to them. And he was nearly killed. He spent months in a hospital, had hundreds of pieces of shrapnel embedded in his legs. He nearly died. Um, and he came back uh, both sort of um, proud of it and beginning to lie and expand the story of what happened to him, um, but also deeply, deeply troubled by it. Couldn't sleep alone, couldn't sleep in it without a nightlight. Um, very, very fearful. And so that's there. And, and, and he, he moves that into his work. He, he uses it as grist for his mill, which is to our benefit. He doesn't ever escape uh, his demons. He arrives in Paris and, and for a kid, he ends up with the, all these great mentors and tutors, some of whom he betrays, some of whom he doesn't. But he's in this heady atmosphere, but there's lots of booze, there's lots of ideas, and he's holding his own. He's handsome, he's movie star handsome, and he sort of fits in. And then he's written these short stories, and then people are sort of saying, well, maybe you should write a novel. He writes a novel that's big. He writes a second novel that is considered by most people, I think it's it's safe to say, uh, A Farewell to Arms is his best novel. And he's as John Dos Passos, a fellow writer in Paris, says, you're the king of the fiction racket, you know? And that's the way our first episode uh, ends. Just before it ends, his father committed suicide, but he's also, because his father's a doctor, taking him places. And what he's seen in war, he's always thinking about that. And and so he, when his father dies, there's a kind of, he sees him as a coward. He sees him as bullied by his, his mother, uh, his father's wife. And, and yet I think there is a fear about that 
always. It's part of the mental illness that went in the family. Four of the eight people in that nuclear family at least uh, take their own lives. And so it becomes a hugely existential thing in which as a writer, he's pursuing what all great writers do, which is the obviousness and yet the deceptions we go to to disguise our own mortality. And then he's he's beset. And as he tries to hide the fears and the vulnerabilities and the insecurities and the, you know, envy and all of the other attendant emotions that happen, um, he creates a facade that's hard to live up to, or it's tiring enough to live up to that he then can't be as good as he was before. And, and then you're in, as I've said, you know, you're in the classic territory of tragedy. Yeah, and that, that's how it plays. And uh, episode one sort of teased that up. The very teaser of it at the end, you can tell where we're headed. Um, you mentioned, so you say that you and probably most scholars would consider A Farewell to Arms his greatest. And of course, you mentioned the Nobel, you know, loved uh, Old Man in the Sea later in life. What, what do you think in your researching him, was there one he himself was particularly proud of? Was it the short stories or was it, was it one of the novels you've already mentioned? You know, um, for an artist, uh, and I know as a filmmaker, it's it's really about process. And so while you can finish something and say, this is my best, or this is my most important, it really doesn't matter. The, the covers of the book with their titles are what you and I absorb. What the writer does, there's a kind of continuum. And I think that when he finishes things, you know, when he finished his his uh, first novel, he thought it was great. You know, uh, he knew his short stories were great and was surprised at some people who were shocked by the, some of the themes he dealt with. His parents practically disowned him for the, for the stuff that, as his father said, you know, uh, the discussion of topics like venereal disease that shouldn't take place outside of a doctor's office, of which his father was one. Um, you know, and and then he goes along, and he and he and he does good work. When he when he switched to nonfiction for a while in the '30s, and and wrote uh, "Death in the Afternoon" about bullfighting in Spain, and and took on a character in the in the book, he's explaining things to an old lady who's listening, and he's trying to justify his attraction to bullfighting, knowing that most Americans will be repelled by it, and and the 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 wanton death kind of abhorrent to us, but it is a noble tradition within the European community, particularly Spain. And then later, Green Hills of Africa, uh, in which he's even more of a kind of pompous pontificator. Uh, he thought those were, were great. I mean, he even thought this god-awful novel that he wrote uh, called, uh, you know, Across the River and Into the Trees was fantastic. And it wasn't. I mean, it's just turgid prose, which we highlight. Um, so it's hard to say whether looking back on a career, he knew it. He knew that he was a great writer. He knew that he'd left things. But for any person, it's not the thing you've done. It's the thing you're working on. And that's the most important thing. And when that got strangled by all of the things that we've discussed, then you've got a real problem. And then it really doesn't matter if at the end of his life, he could look back and say, oh, it's a farewell to arms. And not everybody agrees with a farewell to arms. Some people think it's a sun also rises or for whom the bell tolls or uh, Mario uh, Vargas Llosa in our film thinks it's the old man in the sea. But Edna O'Brien doesn't like old man in the sea. She likes a farewell to arms. And she says this wonderful thing that speaks to this complexity and his duality about sex and about other things. Um, 
he said he gets the boys stuff right, meaning the war stuff in A Farewell to Arms. But what do people remember? It's the death of a woman in childbirth. And, you know, you go, that's right. I mean, this is, there, there are sensitivities about war and sensitivities about human life. He was curious about everything, about nature, how it functioned. He was unsentimental about that. He knew the cruelty of nature. He wanted to tell you how to fire a machine gun and how to bait a hook and how to order a meal and how to make love and how, you know, all of these things. He wanted to impart what he had learned and do it in this very spare thing that's Still, many of us are still addicted to. And some of us, you know, as Verghese suggests, uh, you know, kill that, you know, want to be the opposite. But that means he's still influential. If you want to be not a Hemingway, you still speaking volumes about the power of Hemingway almost as much, if not more, than if you're trying to emulate him, which no one can do. That's such a great point. And I love your point about um, you know, how for him, it's it's not whether he considered, you know, a farewell to arms or some else arises as his best or, you know, there's a famous story where to have and have not was considered his worst. And Howard Hawks bet him <laughs> while they're fishing down in Key West. I can turn that into a hit Bogart movie. But like to your point, to him, it doesn't matter. It's that process. And I have to reflect on your career in the same way. I mean, would your farewell to arms be, you know, civil war? Is that your magnum opus? For me, man, it's baseball. I know you're not going to want to give me one. You're going to say it's the process, but you know. Well, you know, uh, when the civil war came out, I, I thought it was the best thing I'd done. And it was the best thing I'd done. And uh, baseball came out and I understood, you know, things about it and jazz and all individual projects on Thomas Jefferson. I mean, there's six films before the Civil War, two of which were nominated for Academy Awards. So they can't be that bad, right? <laughs> my first one, Brooklyn Bridge, and my third one, The Statue of Liberty. And, and there was The Shakers and uh, Huey Long and The Congress and Thomas Hart Benton. And then the Civil War came and, you know, dozens of films since then. Um, you know, it's it's somebody asked Duke Ellington, who's our most prolific composer, American composer, what was his most important piece? And he said, the one I'm working on now. So I just finished Hemingway and, and I'm actually enjoy the evangelical part talking to you about it. But I'm in the middle of finishing a film on um, on Muhammad Ali. We locked it. So now what's left is sound mixing and onlining. It's still creative, but the film is done. So my whole thing is two films are in the editing room that aren't done. One is a two-part biography of Benjamin Franklin. The other, which I'm about to start in three minutes, which is an editing session for the rest of the day on the history of the U.S. and the Holocaust. What we knew and when we knew it, what we did and what we didn't do and what we should have done. A whole complicated multi-decade story of that. So so that's what's floating my boat. And we've got films in production on the American Revolution, on the history of the Buffalo, on African-American life from emancipation to the beginning of the Great Migration, uh, on Leonardo da Vinci, our first non-American topic, all of them underway on LBJ and the Great Society. So, I mean, I wake up at three in the morning and the things I think about are the ones that aren't done. And that's I, I have no idea if that's the way Ernest Hemingway worked. Everybody is private in their own way. And I'm in a collaborative meeting medium. So we have to ask Lynn and Jeff and other things, but it's really pushing forward. And it is about this moment. What, what can I do in three minutes from now when I have to try to make the U S and the Holocaust film better? 
Right. Uh, you wake up in a quarantined uh, barn right now. You wake up and you have the Holocaust, Ben Franklin and Muhammad Ali rattling around in your brain at the same time. It, and, and five others in production. You know, these right. are the ones in the editing room. So they have a kind of, uh, um, you know, that, that our films are made in the editing room. You know, we don't go in knowing what it is. So they they have a kind of an urgency and force. But the others, the the revolution one has to be done by April of 2025, which is the 250th anniversary of Lexington and Concord. That may seem like a long way to you. It's tomorrow. <laughs> it's tomorrow. And it wakes me up with, a, you know, at three in the morning. And, and if I can get back to sleep, that's a good and lucky night. Yeah, well, your best work is always the one you're working on. So yes, we'll let you get so. back to that work. But man, yeah. it, when you rest your hat on the rack, it's going to be a hell of a body of work. So, well, you know what? I'll I tell you one way to think about that last question is the thing I want every single day when I put my head on the pillow is to know that I've made at least one film better, right? I may discover the next morning that that idea sucked. But I, I, I want to go to bed thinking that that I that I moved it along or moved several of those films along. So you can rest your head on that pillow and rest easy like the dog behind you right now. <laughs> yeah, that's my executive producer, Chester. Yeah, he, I love it. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. <laughs>